0: This is Amanda Desiree, author of Smithy. You're listening to H.P. Lovecast.
1: Hello
2: and welcome to HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, where we collect brief interviews by creators with new or upcoming projects. We open each transmission with a guest reading an excerpt from their project, and then follow up with an interview proper. Transmissions posts on the last day of each month. I am Nicholas Dyack, a pop culture scholar of peplum films, industrial music, horror studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland
0: and I'm Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with a special emphasis on the horror and spy genres. Nicholas and I co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarlane. We conclude our King and Yellow month with this episode of Transmissions by presenting three interviews of guests involved in the Hippocampus Press new anthology, Under Twin Suns. They are uh, editor James Chambers and writers Carol Geisander and Megan Arcuri. If you haven't read The King and Yellow, consider picking up the new version edited by Eric J. Gennard and Leslie S. Klinger.
2: Our first transmission is from James Chambers, a prolific writer and editor. James has worked on various comic book series, including Kolchak the Night Stalker. He's the author of many short story collections, including Engines of Sacrifice, On the Night Border, and the forthcoming collection from Raw Dog Screaming Press on the Hierophant Road. James is the editor of Under the Twin Suns, and joins us today to discuss this collection along with providing a reading of his King in Yellow story, The Chamber of Last Earthly Delights, which could be found in his On the Night
3: Border collection. This is a reading from The Chamber of Last Earthly Delights, published in my short story collection, On the Night Border, from Raw Dog Screaming Press. July 13th, 1921. For now, I can only record here that I write this on the pages left unused in my son's journal, recovered from his personal belongings while I processed his decapitated body for disposal last night. The law forbids funerals to those who surrender their lives to the government-lethal chambers. I may mourn him only here. July 14th. My son's life and last days deserve whatever meager memorial I may provide, but tears overcame me yesterday morning and forced me to set down my pen. In supporting the passage of the progressive public euthanasia statutes, a feat accomplished only a scant 14 months past. I never considered that the flesh of my flesh and blood of my blood might find his life so utterly abhorrent and torturous he would choose to end it. I believed my family contented, blessed with a modest but comfortable degree of financial security due to inheritances and investments, and free of the depression and moral ills that often inspire individuals to self-murder. Only a short time ago, my wife, Eliza Mary, and I proudly anticipated our son, Ronald, and our daughter, Sarah Jane, starting families of their own one day. Mercy alone shaped my views on the wisdom of the lethal chambers, Daily, I witnessed the plight of those with debilitating afflictions, mental disorders and moral weaknesses that stranded them in the gutters where they suffered from the elements and abuses of men and women who treated them worse than vermin. The lethal chambers offered a painless means of salvation for those wretched folk. When my district's city councilman, Mr. Winslow nebbins an ardent champion of the program, offered me a supervisory position in the inaugural lethal chamber last summer in gratitude for my efforts toward the cause, my eventual rise through the ranks of the city's civil service appeared quite secure i foresaw no hint whatsoever of providence's sharp reverses that soon stripped away these cherished futures eliza laid to rest in the churchyard six months thence her life claimed by a fever sarah jane unseen and unheard since her mother's demise lost abducted or worse now ronald too has departed Alone, I cataloged the items removed from him before I consigned his headless corpse to the crematory furnace. My grandfather's pocket watch, which I gave him on his 16th birthday, part of an heirloom set that included gold earrings passed to Sarah Jane from my grandmother, and a gold and ivory brooch given to Sarah in trust for her first daughter. Ronald's incomplete diary in which I write, a copper amulet enameled with a citrine design of unknown meaning and a copy of The King in Yellow, an infamous book too easy to acquire despite municipal seizures of its reprintings in Paris, Boston, Rome, and other cities. I presume my rakish nephew Tyson, who studied art for a year in Florence, brought the damn thing back from Europe. My only comfort comes from having been spared the sight of Ronald's lifeless face, a sour boon granted by the nature of the lethal mechanism within the terminal chamber, but I cannot bear to think of this any longer today.
4: Hello, James. Welcome to the show. We hope you're doing awesome.
3: I am. I uh, hope you're doing well, too. Thank you so much for having me.
4: Oh, it's awesome to have you here. So, Under Twin Suns, congrats. It just came out about a month, two months ago. So, tell us about it. Give us your elevator pitch. Sell it to us.
3: So, an elevator pitch for this book is a little tricky because it's it's not a straightforward premise. Um, but I think I can boil it down to a couple of possible, uh, possible descriptions. One would be, what if a mysterious play that drove mad anyone who read it to the end really existed? How would history be different? But because the, the king in yellow and the yellow sign has uh, ser- multiple, multiple facets to it, the other description could be, what if a terrifying entity, the king in yellow, who burned out the world he once ruled, turned his attention to earth and shaped human history? So that's those are my attempts at at an elevator pitch for the uh, for the <laughs> anthology.
0: <laughs> yeah, I like them both, and it really gives you pause to think about it in two different ways because I didn't think of you know the cosmic horror, the implications of cosmic horror of the second one. And that makes sense because of course, Chamber's story would go on to influence HP uh, Love, Lovecraft and so, so many
4: other folks too. yeah
3: yes.
0: so
4: now we started this episode with a reading not from under twin sons, but you know, from one of your stories from on the night border, that was your king and yellow story. So that's kind of, I want to say it's the, the germ of how this anthology came about, but why don't you elaborate? Tell us how did under twin sons come about?
3: There were several factors that came together. Um, I have been knocking around ideas for anthologies for many years and, um, Despite my best efforts, I have been unable to kill any of them off. So I decided that uh, I was going to have to do an anthology project at some point. And I started thinking about what I wanted to do. And around that time, I also happened to be working on On the Night Border. And I had written a story called The Last Chamber of Earthly Delights. That was my first real attempt at writing something set in the, uh, the King in Yellow mythos. Or and I've heard this referred to many different ways. I've, uh, I've heard people call it the Carcosa mythos. Uh, The Yellow Sign, The Mythos of the Yellow Sign. Um, But I wrote a story that was essentially a direct response to The Repairer of Reputations by Robert W. Chambers. And that was the the first story that introduced The King in Yellow and The Yellow Sign, those ideas, those concepts, the play that could drive you mad if you read the second act. And I thought that was just an amazing story and kind of wanted to write something that took it uh, as literal piece as a little, literal narration. And if you read the story, you you learn very quickly that it's actually told from the perspective of an, unreli- of an unreliable narrator. Uh, but there are so many things with that that resonate today. And it's it was written in 1895. It's set in, I think, 1921 in New York City. And that, that was another piece that appealed to me. I, I love writing about New York City, uh, reading about New York City. And there's, but yet there are concepts in there that really shed a light on things, uh, issues, controversies, social trends that we see today. And I started thinking, well, what would what would a world where the king in yellow really existed look like? What would history look like in different periods? Or if the yellow sign and the king in yellow from Carcosa had an influence on in our history, how would that have shaped, um, shaped the world? And I decided, hey, there's a good idea for an anthology. Let's do alternate histories, alternate history stories where the king in yellow or the yellow sign and the you know the king in yellow the play the king in yellow the figure the entity were factors in in how history developed and I thought well okay let me write a proposal for that which I did and I made a list of authors that I really wanted to approach to contribute to the anthology and I had um, you know started thinking about It was actually one of two proposals I wrote at that time. Uh, So I had another anthology idea that I thought would be really cool too. And I sent them over to Derek Hussey, who's the publisher at Hippocampus Press. And we started talking. I had previously worked with Derek on an anthology called A New York State of Fright, which I was a co-editor for. And Hippocampus Press is just an amazing publisher to work with. They are really uh, have you know? Derek has kept that running for many years. I think they had their twentieth anniversary recently, or, or even more, maybe twenty something. I forget exactly. But uh, and they've they've produced so much um, so much valuable literature, recording and um, archiving and preserving the history of horror fiction and weird fiction. And they've uh, gone out of their way to publish lost works. Um, in the, you know, they have several series that are reviving works from the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, many by women um, who, you know, have, have sort of slipped through the cracks until now, until they've been revived. Uh, by Hippocampus Press and by some other books like uh, Weird Women edited by Lisa Morton and Les Klinger. And I thought that Hippocampus would be a great fit for a book like this because it really, maybe it would fit with their audience. They'd be interested in some fresh interpretations of the yellow sign. And uh, I wanted to also do something with cosmic horror, but I didn't want to do Lovecraft. And so this seemed really appealing. Um, So Derek and I knocked it around uh, for a while via email and whatnot. And then we uh, got a chance to chat face-to-face at uh, Necronomicon in 2019, the summer of 2019, and kind of firmed everything up there and uh, went ahead. And so from there, I, I jumped in and started uh, talking to authors and trying to get people on board.
4: Very cool. Nice yeah. to see a little bit of the uh, behind the curtains on a, how an anthology
3: comes along.
0: Yeah. I'm terrible
3: about, I'm terrible about behind the scenes stuff. I'll, I'll reveal it all, so be careful. What <laughs>
0: What's helpful though, uh, James, is, is hearing that it you know, it was a two-year process, and that's not unlike what we encounter when we're doing academic anthologies, uh, getting essays from various people when we do a call, because uh, of course we, we're not hand-selecting people, but um, it's more open, but it's nice to hear that the processes aren't all that different uh, from each other. Um, I'd love to hear what differentiates uh, the stories in your anthology from other King and in Yellow inspired stories that have already come uh, before Under Twin Suns.
3: That's, that's a good question. It's difficult for me to answer. I mean, the glib answer is it's different because I edited this one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's not very helpful. Um, and, and I have to I will I will say up front, I haven't read all of the other Chambers related anthologies or fiction. I've read a fair amount. Um so I couldn't give you a, a really definitive answer, but I think it's it's the same thing that differentiates any anthologies uh, edited by different people. Uh, it's a different vision. Uh, it's a different process, which, you know, I think people underestimate how much the process of putting together an anthology influences the final work. And editors have different processes. They work with authors in different ways they, Write their guidelines in different ways, and you know, there's certain basic things all editors do, and certain common techniques and practices. But at the you know, at the end of the day, everybody's doing sort of their own thing, and an anthology can, in, you know, many ways, be just as individualistic or have as much of a voice from the editor as a novel does from the novelist. And I think that's really where you know, if anything differentiates it, it's it's that. It's just that I would probably not uh, edit this anthology the same way Ellen Datlow would. Or I should say Ellen, yeah, or Ellen Datlow certainly wouldn't do it the same way I do it. Uh, I'm sure that I didn't do it the same way uh, that Joseph Pulver Sr. edited his anthologies. And um, Joe is, you know, uh, sadly no longer with us, but is acknowledged as one of the the, the, uh, most influential figures in this part of weird literature, you know, in contemporary writing. Um, so I, I think that's what it comes down to. It's you know I probably you know even something as simple as I'm reaching out to my uh, my sort of author circle and I'm thinking about who could do a great job with this or who could write something I'd want to read for this, and every editor is going to have different people in that in that group. You know there's there are some that are going to come up for a lot of editors. And there are some who are only gonna come up for this editor or that editor. And that's where you really get the opportunity to bring something new to the table, I think.
4: Now, James, is Under Twin Sons your second anthology you've edited after New York State of Fright?
3: It is, yes. Okay. So the, the last anthology I edited before this was New York State of Fright. It's, but New York State of Fright was not the first anthology that I edited. Oh, what, was, what was the first? way back in the 1990s i was an editor for a comic book publisher called techno comics and they did things like mickey spillane's mike hammer and leonard nimoy's primordials isaac asimov's iBots, neil gaiman's mr hero and things like that and it's at the um the end of the cycle for the comics the company didn't last that long i think about three years uh, but toward the end, we were start because they had all these connections with the larger publishing world, because they were working also with Ann McCaffrey and John Jakes and um, these other people. They decided they wanted to put out illustrated anthologies uh, based on the characters. And so I edited an anthology of Isaac Asimov's iBots stories. Uh, and I worked on an anthology called Ann McCaffrey's A Corna, uh, which was about a unicorn girl, essentially a humanoid girl who had. Aspects of a unicorn, so some science fiction fantasy, uh, and those had uh, multiple uh, contributors I think three or four contributors each with uh, illustrations.
4: So, under Twin Suns, since that one is co- you know constructed during the pandemic, how different was it, you know, putting this anthology get, uh, together versus New York State of Fright and your comic work of the 90s?
3: Yeah, they there's no like if you drew Venn diagram for these three different types of projects, there'd be no overlap. <laughs> it was so totally different. I mean, the nine the books I did in the 90s, I was doing um, as a staff editor. I uh, was working with you know a sort of narrower list of authors and contributors. Um, I probably had more fun on those working with the artists than the authors, which is not to say anything negative to the authors who all turned in terrific stories. A New York State of Fright. I was one of three co-editors and that was um, a more intensive project. We wanted to uh, work with our contributors because it was a very focused book. It was New York horror authors doing New York horror stories. Uh, It was published by a New York horror publisher, Hippocampus Press, and it was a fundraising anthology to raise money for a New York City program called Girls Right Now, and the "right" is spelled W-R-I-T-E, which pairs at-risk teen uh, girls interested in writing with professional publishing mentors for like writing and career planning and things like that. So we did a lot of hands-on editing for that because uh, it was focused, not, not for all the stories. I mean, it really kind of varied, but there were some authors where let's, we'll work with you if, you know, if the story's close kind of thing. And so we put a lot more of that kind of effort into the anthology, uh, which was good and fun and, you know, just a, a different course. Um, and, and it was, there was consultation among the three edit, co-editors about what should be, what, what should we do with this story? Should we include this story? Should we not? Uh, under Twin Sons was basically my baby. Derek at Hippocampus Press pretty much let me go with it. Um, he was great to bounce ideas off. Uh, if I needed advice, he would provide some advice. But as far as, you know, the stories and the direction of the anthology, he was really uh, very gracious and giving me a lot of freedom. And I took a very, a very focused approach to this book, I had an idea of what I wanted, I made my list of authors, I, I intended to uh, approach based on what I hoped I would get stylistically, thematically, and um, just in, you know, in general, uh, you know, a variety of narratives. Um, and, I, and I went forward with that and, you know, not all the pieces fell into place the way I wanted to, but all the fe- pieces fell into place in a really great way. And so this was it was different because this was not a collaborative editorial effort in the sense that the um, the 90s anthologies were collaborative because there were other editors uh, at different. We were we were actually producing those at Techno Comics, but to be published by I think it was Harper Prism at the time. And so there were editors there who had input <clears throat> because they were the ultimate publisher. We were essentially the book producer. And so there was, you had to work with them. You had to work with uh, the other editors at Techno Comics, had to work with the uh, authors, the author's agents in some cases, the illustrators. Um, New York State of Fright, there were three editors. Uh, and so under Twin Sons, it was, you know, like time for me to, to do my own high wire act, I guess. <laughs> well, it's, it
4: came off very successful the anthology that's for sure
3: thank you
0: given that uh chambers uh, the king in yellow um has been such an influence on this book i would love to to kind of wind back the the wheels of time and find out from you when did you first read the king of yellow king in yellow and what were your initial impressions of, of the stories
3: i can't, i honestly do not remember the first time i read the story Uh, I remember when I first read it seriously with the intent of sort of analyzing it, which was much later. I'm sure I had read it, The Repair of Reputations um, and The Yellow Sign. I'm sure I had read those two and probably more than once in various anthologies over the years, reprint anthologies. I don't know if if you were reading horror in the 80s, you probably have a stack of those old Uh, Barnes and Noble anthologies that were put out, you know, frequently and other hundred great horror stories and best tales of uh, weird fiction and things like that. But when I first read them, the edition that I found was the uh, was a Chaosium uh, edition, Chaosium book. And I, I don't believe the title was The King in Yellow but I can't remember off the top of my head what the title was, but it reprinted uh, all the relevant King and Yellow stories and and a lot of other Chambers stories. And I thought it was cool. Uh, It it honestly did not get under my skin then the way it did later. And I do not recall exactly what brought me back to the stories years later, but I went back to read them much, much more recently within the last 15 years or so. And The Repairer of Reputations just kind of planted its stakes in my imagination. Uh, everything about it sort of had a new vitality for me that time that I read it. And I think it was partly understanding better as a writer what exactly Chambers accomplished in that story. The New York City aspects of it resonated for, resonated resonated more for me. And it also, you know, I read it with a, a better understanding and knowledge of the history of fiction and weird fiction in particular, and realized just how remarkable that story is for for having been written in 1895 or published in 1895. I don't know exactly when it was written. Um, And, you know, so at that point, it really impressed on me just how weird these creations were, uh, just how intriguing they are, and just how full of potential those ideas are.
4: What's the Chaosium book, The Yellow Sign and Other Stories?
3: That would be the one. Yes, here we go. Thank you, Nick.
4: So why do you think The King in Yellow continues to resonate with horror and weird fiction writers and uh, readers today?
3: I I write a little bit about this in my introduction, and I think it's I think it's because Chambers didn't flush it out. Um, You know, those stories, The King in Yellow mythos, the repair of reputations, the yellow sign in particular, uh, and then snippets in the mask. And in the court of the dragon, elements of in the court of the dragon. And those are the four considered the four core King and Yellow stories. I have been learning that there are other stories people consider possibly part of the King and Yellow mythos, and I haven't haven't um, learned quite enough about that yet to take a position. So I'm I'm still reading about that. But in all of those four stories, you get very very little from the play, the King and Yellow. There are a few stanzas here and there. There are references to the play. Um, The yellow sign itself is very enigmatic. Uh, The the character in the yellow sign, who is the most horrific character, uh, probably of the four stories uh, described as a a coffin worm in appearance is never, never fully explained. (laughs) And I think, I think loose ends are endlessly appealing to horror writers or to any writers. I mean, if you have an imagination and you read these stories, you cannot help wondering what if. Or what did this mean? Or what next? Or how would this look in a different setting, different time, different place, different characters? And I think that's what grabs writers' imagination with those stories.
0: Well, on that note, we're coming up to uh, the end of the interview and would love to hear uh, what's next for you, James.
3: Well, let's see, I just had uh, in July, a novella published called Devil in the Green. That is a cryptid novella about the Montauk monster. and a little bit of Bigfoot and some other mysterious things, maybe a little men in black. That was part of a, uh, a series of cryptozool- cryptozoology novellas in the fall. Raw Screaming Press is publishing a second collection of my fiction. <gasps> and this will collect my short uh, science fiction and fantasy fiction. And the book is called on the Hierophant road. And, and thank you for the gasp, Nick.
4: <laughs> I didn't know that because because I've got on the night border. I've got one of the special versions of on the night border that has a a front matter that's numbered and tailored just to me.
3: Oh, very nice. So those, those were cool. Yes,
4: I I hope it's probably costly for raw dog screaming. I'm pressed to do that again, but I hope they do because. I treasure Mm -hmm. my On the Night border copy that has that.
0: Uh, Actually, I have one more question before we let you go. And that is in the introduction, you said that there is no relations as you know of between Robert W. W Chambers and yourself. Have you since yet made a connection with him uh, as an ancestor?
3: No, no, I haven't. And I, somebody who is related to him reached out to me online and we, we chatted a bit and then I I sort of dropped the ball in following up, but I couldn't, couldn't really see any path to a connection. And, you know, as I, as I mentioned in the introduction, he has roots in Brooklyn. He was born in Brooklyn. Uh, I have root family roots in Brooklyn, um, but they're not on the Chamber's side of the family. Um, But then he had roots upstate in upstate New York. I have roots up there, but apparently it's a different part of New York. And so I think it's probably just one of those coincidences or the, if there is a relation there, it's so far removed that uh, it's difficult to determine.
4: You may not be related to him, but you do benefit for being next to him in the alphabet on the bookstore (laughs) shelf.
3: Yeah, I hope so. I'm I'm sure all those, uh, those copies of chambers books are flying off the shelves <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs>
4: well james thank you so much for coming on and chatting about under twin sons congrats on its a uh, mm-hmm. publication and we wish you and your new anthology continued success
3: thank you so much i appreciate i appreciate the uh, the support and the chance to talk about the book mm-hmm.
0: Welcome back. Our next transmission is from Carol Geisander. Carol is a writer and editor and her short stories have appeared in anthologies such as Cat Ladies of the Apocalypse, Stories We Tell After Midnight, and various writer punk anthologies. She will be doing a reading and then talking about her under twin son's story, The Yellow Crown.
5: The Yellow Crown by Carol Geisander. The leaded glass transom window over the massive mahogany door looked down at Betty as if judging her best dress, such as it was. She stood in front of the three-story brick residence on Bleecker Street and debated about inquiring after the job. She looked left and right, but none of the passers-by paid any attention to her or the building. The sounds of a regimental march came to her ears, likely from the 20th Dragoon Regiment heading to their barracks, In nearby Washington Square Park after yet another maneuver. Over the stern beat floated the fluid notes of the jazz club down the street. Of course, jazz music was everywhere these days. The young woman considered walking right up to the front door and knocking as, after all, this was a house of ill repute, although there was nothing on the exterior to indicate this. Would the standard proprieties apply? but her heart quailed and she ducked her head and scurried along the side alley until she reached the servant's entrance in the rear. Betty adjusted the back seams of her stockings and smoothed her short bobbed hair under her cloche hat, finally knocked and managed to only jump a little bit when the door swept open. A middle-aged woman in a calf-length plaid dress greeted her, her hair swept up into elaborate curls. Hello, miss, and you are? Betty automatically dipped into a curtsy. I'm Betty, ma'am. She looked up into the woman's eyes, emboldened by a sudden surge of hope that this job could work out. My neighbor sent me for the hostess position. She said she knows you, and then we have to see what happens next.
4: Hello, Carol. Welcome to the show. How are you doing?
5: I'm doing great. Michelle and Nicholas, it's so wonderful to be here with you. Oh,
0: thank you so much for joining us.
5: So tell us about the Yellow Crown. What's your
4: elevator pitch for it? Sell us on it.
5: At the end of the 1920s, as the Great Depression looms, Betty applies for a hostess job at a house of ill repute. She's drawn to the unusual camaraderie of the women in the house and discovers that the madam does not run things as one would expect.
4: It's super <laughs> mysterious with a tinge of uh, the king in yellow thrown
0: in. Yeah.
4: yeah, yeah.
0: I love it. You're such a tease. Teased in the reading and teased us on your pitch. So, um, Carol would love to hear what was the genesis of this story. Well, I, I
5: was asked to do a story based on uh, the two stories from the "The uh, King and Yellow" by Robert Chambers, and what I was struck by was the the lack of power and agency of. The women in these historical pieces they were written in 1895 and they take place in their their future world of 1920s but uh, the women had very minor roles they were you know uh, a love interesty window dressing kind of nah, nabby-pamby so I, I think women had a lot more power we just didn't always see it so going kind of back in time you know what was
4: your first encounter of the king in yellow what was your impressions in the book and um, and
5: also, is The Yellow Crown your first inspired story
4: by Chambers?
5: Oh, that's a fun, that's a fun uh, uh, point. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I had heard of Robert Chambers, and I had heard of The King in Yellow, and it's one of those things I'd always meant to read, but I hadn't actually delved into, into the words. Uh, so when I started reading to do a little research of it, it's dense. There's many, many layers, and there's such a, a psychological aspect of, like, the, the one character Hildrich's Madness, you know, I actually went and talked to a friend of mine from college who uh, is a psychologist and said, what do you think about this? And of course he knew all the stories already. So that was fun to explore. Um, but as far as, you know, whether I've done this kind of thing before, I actually like writing stories that are inspired by a, a, an original work. And as, as a matter of fact, I'm the, um, the editor in chief of a small charity press called Writer Punk Press. And that's what we do. We do punk stories like steampunk or biopunk or cyberpunk based upon, you know, Shakespeare, Poe, classic horrors. So, uh, you know, we've got uh, our sixth anthology is out this month. So that's very fun.
4: Hold on, hold on. I did not know that about you. So one, congrats on your sixth anthology. And two, I mean, I I know we've talked before and you mentioned that you've done some cyberpunk stuff before, but I didn't realize that you're so into the, you know, you know blank punk and blank punking a things that's cool yeah,
5: yeah it came about in a funny way there's there's a facebook group that we were all in and one guy said man it'd be really cool if we wrote like a, a steampunk version of hamlet and somebody else said oh i'd love to do uh you know a cyberpunk version of this that and the other and i'm like dibs on Macbeth." right? So uh, we put together two anthologies of punk, punk Shakespeare, and then we, we went from there, and I sort of evolved into being, into being the editor because I, I clipboard and spreadsheet well.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, I, I'm going to tell you, Carol, you made it seem so seamless, the yellow crown to just seamlessly fit right into Robert Chambers' original stories. But um, kind of pulling back the, the curtain were there any challenges that you encountered in writing your story? Yeah, it, it was uh, interesting trying to parse out all the, what does this really
5: mean? You know, the, the, the story of the uh, repair of reputations, he describes New York City with all of these phrases and all these historical things going on. And I am not the biggest, strongest history person. So I had to actually tease apart, okay, how much of this was real? You know, and how much of this was in the guy's imagination with his megalomaniacal uh, uh, reactions after reading the, the play that drives you mad. Uh, so that that took me a little bit to, to wade through and then decide where was I going to go with my story?
1: You know, mm-hmm. so
5: that, that was fun and a challenge at the same time.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: So what are
4: the main things you want readers of The Yellow Crown to take away from your story?
5: I think it's important to say that there are many different kinds of power in society and uh, people shouldn't overlook the subtle kinds of power, you know, it's particularly back in those days, like I said, it was usually the men were in charge, the men were the military, the men did everything, but, you know, women have always had a, a great deal of power and I wanted to change up the, uh, the story and the effect even of reading the, the play that drives you mad and uh, see, see what happened to the women when they were a little bit in charge, so.
0: Well, as we get uh, to the end of our interview, Carol, it just went zippity doo very quick, but um, I'd love to hear what's coming up next for you.
5: Oh, well, thank you for asking. That's, that's terrific. I actually hinted at it, but we have our sixth anthology out from Writer Punk Press. Yay, and it's called Taught by Time, Myth Goes Punk. And if anybody's actually looking for this, we have a, uh, a bit.ly thing bit.ly slash taught by time. Takes you right to the book on Amazon and, and helps people find it. So, uh, it, all sorts of fun and cool stories in there. And I actually did the internal artwork on it as well. Which oh, wow. Carol, well, oh, you're also an artist? No, I Graphic stuff. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So, that's fun.
0: You are a woman of many talents. Oh, thank you. Thank you.
4: (laughs) Well, Carol, thank you so much for popping on to chat with us about uh, the Yellow Crown. Uh, We wish you continued success. We hope your uh, story continues to be very well received.
5: Well, thank you very much. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the story. And it's always fun to chat with you guys. That's why the time goes by so fast.
2: Welcome back. Our final transmission is from Megan Arcuri. Megan is a New York-based author whose many short stories have graced countless anthologies, such as *Cheryl Mad, Borderlands 7, and New York State of Fright. She's also the current vice president of the Horror Writers Association. Today, she'll be doing a reading and then talking about her under-twin son's story, Found and Lost.
1: Hi, I'm Megan Arcuri, and I'm going to read from my story, Found and Lost. The ting-ting-tinging of the old man's hammer woke me up. The armorer, Mr. Harburg. Never had any consideration for my needs, my wants. Sure, I was at work, but can a guy get a little rest every now and again? This is the armory, Joseph. We have no time for rest, he would say. I was his assistant, more like his whipping boy. Treated me like a second-class citizen, or worse, a goddamn immigrant. I toiled away in the cramped, musty back room of the shop polishing and dusting seemingly every damn pile of hip plate in the city fall joseph fall he'd say then it was head to prince street to get this head to mercer street to get that i was always getting something for the crazy hoarding dragon the stacks of breast and thigh plates surrounding me were proof positive he could barely walk around they were piled so high and don't get me started with the chainmail. a loud thud the tinging had stopped hang it all His voice came from the front of the shop. It was loud enough to wake the dead. Whole bastard must have dropped the hammer on his foot. Again. Please be careful, Papa. Ah, the lovely Miss Hawberk must have arrived while I was sleeping. Don't fret over me, my dear. I'm fine, he said, especially because I've finished it. Come, look. It's magnificent, Papa. I stepped to the door and pushed it open a crack. The armorer stood in the middle of the shop with Miss Hauberk, Constance. I spent many a night thinking of taking a turn with that one. Those soft lips, delicate fingers, long legs wrapped around me. Isn't it? He said. They both looked at something resting on a cloth in the palm of his hand. Then he gave her a warm, loving look. I'd like to give her another kind of look. The front door burst open. Did you get it, Louis? Miss Hauberk's fiance, he was a soldier, tall with thick wavy hair, one of those chins that could cut granite. Too handsome, too smart, too polite for his own good. He would even smile at me on the rare chance Hauberk allowed me out of the back room. Louis, I didn't like the prick, didn't trust him, always seemed off to me. Mr. Hauberk nodded. Yes, our upstairs friend was right. The tacits, the croissant, all there in that Pell Street attic. And this beauty was hiding on the thigh plate all along. It's actually a clasp. He slid the cloth with whatever was on top of it into Lewis's hand. Things are coming together, he said.
4: We'd like to welcome Megan R. Curry to the show. Megan, how are you doing today?
0: I am well, thank you. How are you guys? We're, we're doing great. So glad to have you here with us uh, this evening and looking forward to talking about, uh, talking with you about uh, Found and Lost, your short story in Under Twin Suns. So thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
4: <laughs> well, well, tell us a little bit about Found and Lost. What's your elevator pitch? S- sell the short story to us.
1: Sure. Okay. Um, what if Hildred Casting from The Repair of Reputations was right? What if he wasn't just some unreliable, unreliable narrator who hit his head and created some made up fantasy world? In Found and Lost, we see the world through the eyes of a new character, Joseph, and we learn that Hildred was more in tune to the King in Yellow than he even knew.
4: Very cool. We, we know that we've, the, the short stories that we've all read from Under Twin Suns so far, they all take a, you know, a different trajectory or a re-envisioning of the repair reputations. And what was the second story?
0: The yellow there's, sign. There's there, I, think. I think the yellow sign was yellow sign, sign yeah yeah, yeah.
4: so okay. so it's so nice to see people uh, you know uh you know within the sandbox of this this take it really cool trajectory so definitely yours was uh, uh, very very cool very uh industrial you know I, yeah. we talked about like how kind of steampunky-ish it was without being steampunk but it still was it was just I love that
1: uh, That was yeah. really cool. it's <laughs> a great yeah. great thing
0: Megan would love to uh, know a bit know a bit more about what the genesis of your story was. Obviously, the anthology, but can you talk about how you got to the point of uh, the story about Joseph?
1: Sure. Um, Jim Chambers, who edited the anthology, um, invited me to submit a story for the project. And um, after reading the specs, I was totally interested. It sounded so cool. The the idea, I love that playing in somebody else's sandbox idea. It's always so much fun. Um, But the thing was, at that point, to be honest, I hadn't read it. So I quickly remedied that and um, really enjoyed the heck out of those stories. And um, I was really more excited because there's so much in there. I had a couple ideas even, and I pitched them both to Jim, kind of, you know, found our way to eventually what became Found and Lost. Um, And, you know, I I, I loved the idea of trying to somehow connect the repair of reputations to the yellow sign, but I wanted to do it, you know, with my own character and my own voice, and when, you know, Joseph kind of started talking to me, that's when I decided, okay, he's the one, this is the story I'm going to go with, because he, he's kind of loud and annoying, so and his, his voice was, was kind of prominent in my head, um, <laughs> so I went with Joseph. Um, the other kind of interesting thing that happened to me when I like was started writing it is that I I had just watched Hamilton, the musical, and I don't know if you guys have seen this yet, but, um, it's, it's one of these things that I I was completely captivated by this whole entire thing. Um, and it has really influenced me as a, as a writer. I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda, he's just, you can tell listening to this, he's just in love with the English language and what he does with it. From song to song is unbelievable. Um, and he's, you know, it's the kind of thing that it just makes me want to be a better writer. I don't think I'll ever get to the level of Hamilton, but at least I have something to strive for. Um, but like, so, you know, there's a lot of, uh, it's it's rap and hip hop, and it's the story of Alexander Hamilton and the Revolutionary War kind of told through that lens. And so, there's this lot of what I consider, well, in my head was calling like a pitter patter, you know, because of what he did. And again, he would have all these great rhymes and these great um, meters and just a lot of interesting things going on. So it was something, you know, that I wanted to at least attempt in my story just a little bit. Um, You know, I don't think I'll ever do it as well, but like, you know, the beginning, the opening line that I read, um, the, the ting-ting-tinging of the the hammer was kind of influenced by that show, but also influenced by by Robert Chambers himself. I mean, in the story, when I first read The Repair of Reputations, Hildred says like the ting-ting-ting of his little hammer sounded pleasantly in the armory. And I remember reading that and thinking a ting-ting-ting would annoy the crap out of me like if I, had, like he goes on for like a page to wax poetic about it and I'm like no that would that would be terrible so I I knew that I had to kind of include that somehow and then do it a little more you know rhythmically um and so you know and Joseph was a good kind of jerky character to do it and really another way, I, I know I'm kind of going on about Hamilton, but it just kind of ha- happened to be at the same time I started writing it, but but one of the themes in Hamilton is immigration. And um, it's, you know, coupled with what's going on in the news, and then also coupled with specifically the repair of reputations. I mean, the first few pages, you you can tell that New York City has become an unfriendly place to immigrants, and they remove like the Italian and the French cafes and certain um, you know ethnic or racial groups are kind of segregated or not even allowed in the community and they just talk about it like it's a like it's a really negative thing. And of course it had echoes of what's going on currently. Um, and I'm not really a political person and I don't want to get political here. And I try not to get too political in my stories, but it was on my mind and it because not only from the musical and the news but also it was just in the text itself. So I thought making uh, Joseph, an uh, an Italian immigrant would kind of add to his background a little bit and make it a little more dangerous for him because he was trying to hide it. Um, It doesn't really end up biting him in the face ultimately, but it was just something to kind of play around with. Um, And, you know, in, in addition to like taking Hildred's story and saying, hey, what if he actually was telling the truth? I also kind of turned the other characters on their head too. So like Haubert the armor and Lewis and, and Constance were all very, I found them to be very sympathetic in the repair of reputations, but I was like, well, let's, let's make them jerks too. And let's, you know, let's kind of change it up a little bit. And um, you know, I, I tend to think that Hauberk kind of knew Joseph was an immigrant and probably, but didn't say anything, but paid him less because of it. And so that, so, you know, when, when we were talking about Joseph being an unreliable narrator, he kind of, like in my mind, he's kind of not. He's he says it like it is, and he, you know, he's pretty unhappy and he has, you know, justification to be unhappy. So, I mean, it's a lot of <laughs> a lot of Hamilton for the king in yellow, but <laughs> that's, just, that's just what happened. So, that's really cool. I
4: mean, you know, Michelle and I were both pop culture scholars, and when, whenever we look at a text, which is primarily film, you know, we're film folks first and foremost, you know, one of the things we always ask or look at is, this text, where did it come from? What's mm-hmm. what's inspiring it? What are the people that are making it drawing from? And how does it like capture like a zeitgeist or something? Because you know, every pop culture text is a vessel for what was going on. Right. So I, right. I'll i be honest, because we hadn't seen Hamilton, I would never have thought Hamilton would have been a big influence on this. It's <laughs> like, you know, here's King and in Yellow influence, here's Hamilton, and I think that's <laughs> awesome.
1: Mm-hmm it was kind of, it was, yeah, when I started thinking about this question, I'm like, oh, that's right, I had just seen Hamilton, I was thinking a lot about it when I was writing it, so.
0: And it's amazing uh, where you get your, your influences, and what inspires you, right. so what if it had been, you know, I don't know, Henry V, or, you know, some other play out there, or maybe even some other film, um, and what might your story, have, what direction might your story have gone?
1: Absolutely, it's, it's, Passing right the timing of everything is kind of yeah. key so you would said earlier this one actually was your
4: first time reading the king in yellow yes so so since this was your first encounter with chambers's book what were your impressions of that since that book uh, has had you know such a profound influence on a lot of weird fiction and other authors right. uh also will this be a text that maybe you'll consult with later and maybe draw some additional influence from in successor stories okay
1: Yeah I mean let's see this is I knew I learned that it was written in the late 1800s 1890 something if I'm not mistaken and um although I should know better every time I pick up a book written from that era I'm always a little leery I'm like okay is it gonna be the flowery language and the lots of melodrama and I'm gonna get bored and not understand stuff and and really the past bunch of books that I've read from that era have been fantastic, including this one. I mean, this is, um, it is, the language is decidedly not flowery. And it's very easy to follow. You know, there's no, he, like, he doesn't go on and on about some tapestry hanging on the wall and the carpet piling and all this stuff. Like, you know, it, it not at all. It was very, it felt very modern almost. There was, there was not, it didn't feel like it was written in the eighteen century. Um, 90s to me. I was, I was pleasantly surprised. And um, I loved the subtlety of the supernatural elements. I mean, in, in the repair of reputations, I mean, from beginning to the end, it didn't, I didn't know. I wasn't sure if he was really pushing Hildred toward no, he's telling the truth, or no, he's really, he really hit his head a little too hard and, and you shouldn't believe a word he says. It was very, and it's fun. I like it when an author does that and kind of leaves it up to you. I have to say when I when I read The Yellow Sign, though, I feel like it kind of really pushed it toward the supernatural because the, the ending was just there was so much that was like, oh, I don't know, it could be real. But this I, now I'm feeling like it's supernatural. Like I kind of flip flopped, and I and I like I like it when an author does that. So I, I did enjoy that part of the text a lot um and this this is the first story i have written um that's inspired by the king in yellow and i this is a totally a text i would return to absolutely it's it's rich with all kinds of ideas i think
0: you did a marvelous job with found and lost and you know i i i admire writers that are able to work in in other people's sandboxes and i'd love to just hear um, did you encounter challenges while you were um, trying to write in that sandbox and, and as you wrote, found and lost? Absolutely. And, but they were, they were, I have to say they were fun
1: challenges. Like there wasn't a time where I wanted to like, you know, throw the computer against the wall. This is one of those stories. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the struggle's worth it. Cause it's a lot of fun that, I mean, because I was tying the repair reputations to the yellow sign through Joseph. Uh, the timeline was super important. So that was one thing I always had to keep an eye out. And I actually like I found I found my little I wrote it out like I wrote it out like I don't think you can see it. But like beat by beat, I was like, okay, this is when this happened in this story and this and this and this. So I just had to make sure I couldn't I didn't mention something too early or mentioned something too late. And there was a point where I was like, you got to write this down. Because otherwise, you're going to completely botch this. And there are people that are going to read this that are going to know if you messed it up. So make sure you've got the time. I'm sorry if I messed it up, like the name, but I don't think I did. <laughs> so, but that um, you know, it's it was important to get the timeline right. And um, the other one of the other challenges also was um, what New York City looked like. I think he wrote he was saying it was in the 1920s. This was New York City in the 1920s. So. As I was writing, I was just throwing out like street names that I knew, blah, blah, blah. And Then, then a little voice went off like, "Who did that, did that exist in 1920 in New York City? So, and I mean, I know it's fiction, like his book is fiction, but I still wanted to make it as accurate as possible. So, but it was fun to do that kind of research because they have maps of New York City from like, I don't believe centuries probably even. So you can find exactly what you're looking for. And it was a lot of fun. And the, one of the street names I did pick was Chambers, not only for the author but for the editor. I don't know if I ever told you that, but that's yes. Um, <laughs> and it was also just kind of fun to learn a little bit about New York to some things that I didn't know. Like in the in the yellow sign, the, one of the the characters, Tessie, the model, um, she finds the onyx, the stone that I reference a lot. Um, she says she finds it by the by the aquarium in the Battery, way down in the southern tip of New York City and I was like there was an aquarium in the battery like what oh that's good so I googled it just to make sure and there actually was an aquarium in the battery um but it, it has since moved to um Coney Island and it's still there and it's, I mean it's just, it was just fun to kind of learn that but it was again like just kind of making sure everything fit right in that story and in New York was important so Megan actually I got a
4: kind of a fun question for you just because your story found and lost is kind of a connected story because it connects uh, repair reputations with the yellow sign. Are you kind of like a a fan of that kind of storytelling of like interconnected stories? I think of like films like kind of like pulp fiction and, and shortcuts where it's a whole bunch of like micro stories but they all kind of run together through either a common thread or there's another narrative that tethers them together. Is
1: that kind of a thing you're into? I, I do like that. I think it's a, it's an interesting storytelling mechanism. Um, of course, when you were saying that immediately, I thought of Moonlight, which isn't quite different story. Like they're kind they're very connected, but it was, there were three parts to it. That was, they were, they were kind of stood on their own, but they were ultimately connected. But I, yes, I do. I do like that type of storytelling and Pulp Fiction. Is awesome. <laughs> So with Found and Lost, what's the primary thing
4: that you want readers to take away from your story?
1: Well, with the exception of the horrible typo at the end, um, I hope that people enjoy how it does kind of connect the two stories and fit into the timeline, Um, because again, I had so much fun doing that. And I also hope it makes them laugh a little bit because I mean, Joseph is, he's a piece of work and it's like a <laughs> sardonic type of thing. But I do like the, I, I was laughing when I wrote it, even though he's kind of a pig sometimes, but he's still, he's just kind of amusing. So I hope that people can can find the humor in that somewhere. So
4: I, I mean, ultimately, he's, you know, not the nicest of characters, but there are times where, you know, because, you know, Michelle and I, we, we work our, are eight to five jobs, and there's moments where we're like, raw, 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 raw. so we, we sympathize with Joseph, especially <laughs> at the beginning there of here I'm in a bad slave away. What's that guy doing? No respect, Ronnie Dangerfield. No respect. <laughs> <Totally>. Yes,
0: <laughs> he, he's one of those characters. I think that there's something about him that you can identify with, whether it's being a disgruntled employee or having a lusty thought about some other person or, you know, you know, having a secret that you're trying to keep. Um, and then also just wanting to get a, get ahead in life and thinking, okay, I, I, I have fortune is smiling, uh, down on me. I have, have made it, I, I have the winning lotto numbers or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, and then it goes horribly wrong. So, you know, uh, I liked Joseph, uh, for a lot of, a lot of reasons, uh, that being that he is so identifiable and and uh he's a, he's a good character maybe he'll make another appearance somewhere else uh in another time
4: <laughs> you know who he reminds me of uh, after you were done saying it makes me think of ed harris's character from Glen Gary Glenn ross where he wants to kind of get ahead but he's also mm-hmm. kind of a little like remember these guys
1: I don't I saw that movie so long ago I don't remember but I feel like yeah Ed Harris would be a good (laughs) guy to play him yes absolutely absolutely
0: oh my gosh um yeah so you know we're going to try and make a movie out of this so (laughs) (laughs) awesome (laughs) but uh in the meantime uh Megan what is next for you 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 now have uh found and lost in in this anthology so what next can readers look for that you're involved in? I have a story and I just signed the contract,
1: but I still don't know that I'm allowed to say anything out loud, but I will say that it is, it is in the works. It is also another sandbox type story. So it was, again, it's a completely different text movie and um, it was a lot of fun to do. Um, But I, that's, I don't mean to be a jerk, but that's, that's about
0: as much as I think I can say about it. No, you're very sweet about that. Thank you. <laughs> it
4: just means that folks are just going to have to follow you on social media and your website oh, to say, okay, what's this big project? We're going to keep our eyes open for it. And you scared the cat. <laughs> oh, sorry,
1: Bo.
0: Oh, the poor <laughs> Got to curb that enthusiasm. But we are very excited for you. So we'll be looking out for that. And anything else that uh, you have in the works?
1: Well, you know, I am the vice president of the Horror Writers Association, so there's always something going on over there. Um, but you know, always dealing with quick bites, and especially you folks, you guys are awesome and amazing with dealing with you with quick bites. So thank you for that. Um, and we've got a lot going on with the Publications Committee and StokerCon. Um, you know, things should be picking up on those fronts in the next you know few weeks and months. And so please keep your eye out over there as well.
0: And Megan, you, you mentioned about publications. So are you involved with the HWA uh, classics that have been coming out? Because uh, just as a quick plug, we've got the King in, King in Yellow that's been released from HWA, right?
1: Yes, thank you so much for continuing to mention that. That is wonderful. Um, it is, it's, a, it's a big series. Um, uh, the Haunted Library of Horror Classics is the, na- the formal name of the series. Um, I personally don't do any of the, the nitty gritty details. Um, Les Klinger and Eric Winyard are the editors. And I know it was one of Lisa Morton's, you know, she was definitely part of the, um, the team that put it together. And so I think King in Yellow, I wanna say is the seventh book that's been released so far, including like The Beetle and um, The Phantom of the Opera and a few others. And and there will be a, a bunch more coming. So if you are you know into the classics, um, they've there's there's um, an introduction written by a big name author in each book, and again edited by Les and Eric. And um, you know the cover the covers are all super cool. They're all you know similar, but they you know they reflect the story that's being told um so yeah i i'm mostly responsible for making sure that gets promoted and people know about it so thank you again for you guys for helping us with that that is a wonderful thing could the time again timing was perfect so thank you
4: well megan thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about found and lost and all things
1: king and yellow
4: and under twin suns and we wish you continued success
1: Thank you so much. It has been so much fun seeing you guys and talking to you guys. And I appreciate everything you're doing for the anthology and for the HWA. You guys are amazing. Thank you.
0: And that concludes the final transmission for this episode. We want to say thank you to Amanda Desiree, who provided the opening bumper for this episode. Amanda is the author of her debut novel, Smithy, published by Inkshares. Scott Thomas, author of Kill Creek, states, Smithy is a heartbreaking, terrifying experiment in slow burn horror. I wholeheartedly agree. We wish Amanda much success.
2: All right, for upcoming events, let's talk about September H.P. Lovecast. Episode 43 of H.P. Lovecast podcast will review and discuss Mike Shea and Rob Wilkinson's one-shot comic book, Lady Lovecraft. This episode will publish Sunday, September 12th. For our September episode of H.P. Lovecast Presents Fragments, we'll be discussing Gilmel Del Toro's 1997 film, Mimic, starring Mira Servino, Jeremy Northam, and Josh Brolin. That episode will publish Sunday the 26th. And for H.P. Lovecast Presents Transmissions, we'll be spotlighting two or three special guests as they discuss their new or upcoming projects, and we'll provide some readings of their work. That episode will publish Thursday, September 30th. For our Scholars from the Edge of Time programming in September, we'll be discussing the 2012 filmic adaptation of John Carter, starring Taylor Kitsch, Lynn Collins, Samantha Morton, and Mark Strong. This episode will stream... On Thursday, September 23rd.
0: If you are interested in being a guest on Transmissions, please contact us. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course, you can also email us at hplovecastgmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we have either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. Or if you feel like donating a dollar or two, we have a coffee account. A link is provided in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening.